morning and welcome to Rising. We've got another great show for you today. My vocal cords aren't working totally <laughs> appropriately, but I'm going to try to power through it. Brianna, who do we have? Well, we have Max Alvarez and Denise Long discussing the latest on the dispute between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And Seneca Scott explains why the left is to blame for the homelessness crisis in the Bay Area. Plus, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis weighs in on what new NATO members can mean for the alliance. But right now, we'd like to focus on the stricken down mask mandate for travel. Yesterday, President Biden stood at odds with his own White House press corps when he said this about masking on planes. Continue to wear masks on planes. That's up to them. So when asked if the DOJ should appeal the ruling that invalidated the mask requirements on public transportation, Biden said he had not spoken to the CDC about the ruling. Biden's comments mark a stark difference from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki's comments on the ruling Monday. CDC recommended continuing the order for additional time, two weeks, uh, to be able to assess the latest science in keeping with its responsibility to protect the American people. So this is obviously a disappointing decision. The CDC continues recommending wearing a mask in public transit. Uh, as you know, this just came out this afternoon. So right now, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, who would be implementing, and the CDC are reviewing the decision. And of course, the Department of Justice uh, would make any determinations about litigation. According to Washington Post report from yesterday, the Department of Justice said it would appeal the judge's ruling if the CDC deems it necessary. They said in a statement, quote, the department continues to believe that the order requiring making, masking in the transportation corridor is a valid exercise of the authority Congress has given the CDC to protect public health. That is an important authority the department will continue to preserve if the CDC concludes that a mandatory order remains necessary for the public health after that assessment DOJ will appeal the district court's decision. CNN's medical analyst, Liana Wynn, discussed why it's important for the Biden administration to preserve this authority. Let's watch. The Biden administration has to do everything they can to preserve public health authority in the future. Right now, I think it's a bit up in the air as to whether the mask mandate really is needed to control the BA2 variant. But there may very well be a variant in the future that causes more deadly disease or that may evade the protection from our vaccines. We want the CDC to be able to respond at that point. And so everything the federal government can do to preserve public health authority for future crises is important. So that remark there is so key mm -hmm. because this is not actually... They're not fighting to keep this because they think it's super important or super necessary. Mm -hmm. They are only fighting this because they don't want any dilution of their power. They don't want to lose well. the right, the agency, the agency which has taken full control of our lives, that is the de facto policymaker, Robbie, Robbie, doesn't Robbie. want to cede any authority. <laughs> we have the right to force you to mask when we want, forever, how long we want. That is our power and we're not giving it up. Look, you'll get no argument from me that the CDC has behaved terribly, that it has undermined its public trust, and that it deserves a lot of the criticism and skepticism that it's coming its way, including from me. But I don't know that I would read that statement quite that way. I think there's a legitimate concern that there are, could be future variants that require a different level of response. And she's right to point out, it seems like she's acknowledging that the CDC has in fact lost credibility and it is losing its ability to make prescriptions for the future. Now, to that end, it seems like they're basically saying, look, 
we're not going to fight this battle. We're, we're, we're not necessarily going to hand ring and make the most of this most recent turn to say mandates are necessary in the moment, because if we do, we'll either even further diminish the little credibility we have left, which I think is the right move. The question is, is it too little too late? Right. But you could still theoretically address a new health crisis by the process laid out in our Constitution, right? Congress meets. They say there is an urgent public health crisis. We vote to give authority to the CDC to implement a mass mandate. The president signs it. And then the CDC does it. And we're just all like put it. We're saying, no, that's impossible. We can't yeah, that. Look, I respect that in theory. But the fact of the matter is our government has been designed to be ineffective. And the process to change our constitutional design to make it more effective is also extremely laborious. So we're in gridlock and in the middle of a pandemic and a public health crisis and a public economic crisis. I think most people are pretty happy to not be caught up in that gridlock. When we were using budget reconciliation to pass the COVID relief bill, because no Republican would vote for the policies that were going to save the economy and at least get vaccines out the door to keep young, healthy people from fully dying from COVID. Remember those days? when it re didn't really present a real risk to people, even those who weren't immunocompromised and otherwise vulnerable. Yeah, we needed to get out the door. And the only way that was able to happen was because we were able to do it through this budget reconciliation process, which is kind of a cheat that allowed us to pass it with only Democratic support. I don't think many people who got those checks in the mail, who got their vaccines, who got the child tax benefits and all of the things that came with that were exactly complaining, including all the corporations that got the bailout and they were able to keep their doors open. I don't think that those people were complaining about using these get arounds to get around our intractable government. Let's talk about the politics of this a mm -hmm. little bit. It seems to me the Biden administration could have done themselves a lot of good by just letting this go and saying, or, or even saying we're reigning in the CDC. They could mm -hmm. have said, mm -hmm. This is no longer necessary. The, this agency, you know, they, they want to, th their risk tolerance is so low and they want you to mask forever. We're saying mask no longer necessary. You, you want Joe Biden to eliminate the CDC altogether? <laughs> well, he would get my vote that way. I don't know how many, I don't know if that's a winning political strategy, but there are a lot of people who are reasonably overmasked. They're vaccinated. Maybe they've had it. They're protected. And he could have said, yeah, it's done. Look, I do think that there is an accountability crisis, obviously, at the CDC and throughout government. I think average Americans aren't used to seeing people who have done a bad job being held accountable and po potentially losing their jobs, getting replaced for doing a bad job. Could Biden potentially make a scapegoat of some CDC leadership in this moment in an effort to regain some credibility? Yes. Potentially, yes. But why wouldn't he do that? He's going he's gonna to get wiped out. The Democratic Party is about to get de like destroyed. They're not doing, they're not even trying. Well, they're chosen, not even trying. They've chosen instead. This would be an easy win. Yeah. This judge handed them a win. Said, Look, no, you can't do this. I, I and they think could it have might said, well. Be, I think it might be too little too late because the alternative strategy from the White House seems to have been to make heroes of the CDC. And that's a kind of hard right. pivot but, to make but in you the final see stretch. these people celebrating on the planes? Let's play that. So it's not just Trump people, by the way, who are excited. Let's yeah. see this viral video from Monday. To me, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> so I love that clip because, I mean, we don't know that that person's political affiliations are, but surely just from the look of things, it's not the kind of person that I think most liberals are 
thinking of when they think of mm -hmm. who is enthusiastic mm -hmm. about the guidelines. One, because they're working as a flight attendant and the presumption is that everyone who is kind of forced through a professional capacity to be exposed to high risk situations is very pro-mask. Two, because they're black. You know, three, right. because they've got a great voice. I mean, all of these right. things contribute to not being the kind of person that liberals are typically antagonistic against. And I think that this is what we have to keep in mind, what they have to keep in mind as they consider the political implications of all of this. Maybe they have. And that's why Joe Biden is taking this tone that says, hey, look, people can make their own decisions. They know this isn't a battle they want to fight and lose. I, I said the other day that I hate public displays on airplanes, but that <laughs> that I'm here for. Anti-mask right. gospel singing, totally on board. I'm glad we, we know your line now. Yeah. Uh, but this, So this hasn't stopped, however, some leftist groups from organizing against the ruling. So friend of the show, Philip Wegman, tweeted that the Progressive Change Campaign Committee is calling on major airlines to designate certain flights to be mass required because that's the right way to give people a choice, not sitting mass next to unmasked sneezers and MAGA science deniers, whatever. But I'm fine with that. That's a market solution. We can have we can have masked flights and unmasked flights. That's fine. Can we, can we actually, could we have smoking flights too? I can. Okay, yeah, I think that this is probably going to be an administrative nightmare for me. I want to be on the, the sin flight. <laughs> and I think, look, again, as we were talking about earlier in the week, if it is in fact the case that higher quality masks do a good job of protecting the individual, I don't know how many people are going to risk, you know, having to be late to a wedding, cutting close, to, cutting it close in a connection or paying more for a particular fl flight just so that they cannot be around quote unquote unmasked Trumpers. It's already been the case. There are people who are more or less compliant on flights in terms of taking their masks right. off. The f whole fact that you have to take them off to eat and drink already makes it a bit theatrical, in my opinion. But I guess there are people who are going to take advantage of that and enjoy it. How about TSA optional flights? That, I mean, <laughs> all flights should be TSA optional because it's ridiculous. That I support, Rodney. So that's the next. Now we've gotten masks, the mask mandate gone. This is the next step for air flight freedom is abolish the TSA. So long as I can bring some hair products and conditioner on the plane, yeah, I'm in. More than 4.2 <laughs> ounces worth of hairspray. You know I, you know I carry a lot of hairspray I, when I fly. I, I suspected as much, Robbie. <laughs> All right, I'm looking forward to your radar. That's coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, Twitter may not be real life, but it certainly has become the battleground for some very real struggles around labor issues for working Americans. Folks rooting for Elon Musk to buy Twitter, take note. This is what billionaires have been doing on the app so far. Starbucks management has recently drawn criticism for posting fake union tweets at locations in North Carolina and Pittsburgh. According to union leaders, the tweets are made to look like they're from the union's Twitter account, but are doctored to contain messages calculated to scare workers away from joining the union. According to reporting by labor reporter Laura Gurley at Vice, the tweets contain common anti-union rhetoric that emphasizes union dues and minimizes the enormous salary and benefit gains to be had. Gains like an eight-hour workday, ending child labor laws and safer workplaces, gains that unions secured through strike actions and labor militancy in the first half of the 20th century. Now, there is no record of these tweets on official Starbucks worker union accounts, and impossibly, the same fake tweets are posted as having different dates at different Starbucks locations. One tweet is even dated June 1st, 2022, which, unless you own a very special DeLorean, hasn't happened yet. Another tweet has periods as punctuation in the username, something that Twitter doesn't even allow. It's obviously fake. 
but big or not, this effort is an indication of how terrified management is about the over 200 Starbucks locations that have filed for union membership and the 20 successful chains that have so far unionized. Starbucks management apparently shaking in its boots over the notion that it might have to share its nearly $30 billion profit with its workers has taken to blocking union activists and workers on Twitter. Now, this might not be traditional censorship, but those of us who have spent our 10,000 hours on Twitter know that being blocked by an account not only prevents you from seeing that person's tweets, it thwarts your ability to amplify those tweets in the context of mass criticism. Sure, you can open an incognito window and screen grab the tweet, but engagement around the original tweet in the form of retweets and comments, e.g. the dreaded ratio, is key to raising criticism and applying pressure. As Gurley reports, Blocked Twitter accounts can't see or reply to tweets from the account that blocked them, meaning Starbucks is limiting pro-union messages from appearing in its replies, including from employees. Moreover, just consider the optics of your corporate boss sticking their digital thumbs in their ears as you articulate a labor grievance. In the parlance of the youth, it's just not a good look. Of course, more important is the authoritarian stance Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz has taken toward workers. In his first week back as CEO in April, he fired at least four union organizers. But management's behavior on social media could be a harbinger of even broader trends. The real Starbucks union account at SB Workers United tweeted a few days ago, Starbucks and Amazon have lots in common. Both are run by billionaire CEOs who bully their workers and both don't respect the right to organize. And if billionaire CEOs are showing this level of openness toward weaponizing social media to thwart pro-labor efforts, who's to say what Twitter ownership by the richest man in the world might lead to? Elon has demonstrated a stunning lack of equanimity in his own personal capacity on Twitter. While Twitter etiquette generally dictates that the bigger your account, the more gracious you should be to smaller accounts, both to avoid pylons of relative innocence and to preserve your own sense of stature, Elon hasn't hesitated to abuse his power. As Newsweek's opinion editor, Batya Unger-Sargon, pointed out yesterday in a segment on Rising, Musk once offered a 19-year-old college student $50,000 to take down his Twitter account that had been using public records to track Elon Musk's jet. Musk has also used Twitter to illegally threaten workers with the loss of stock options if they unionized. A court ordered Elon to delete this tweet. Heck, the man has even caught flack for stealing memes. Poor form, my dude. Poor form. This is all to say that we should keep a close eye on the way social media is increasingly weaponized by the richest and most powerful among us. During the 2020 primary, billionaire candidate Michael Bloomberg tweeted fictional quotes attributed to Bernie Sanders, which praised Kim Jong-un, Bashar al-Assad, and Vladimir Putin with the hashtag Bernie, uh, Bernie on despots. As a hilarious aside, by the way, a Vox article from the time notes that Twitter, like other major social media companies, doesn't ban content just because it's false or potentially misleading. LOL. <laughs> and therefore, it did not rebuke the Bloomberg campaign for those tweets. Selective censorship much? Anyway, Bloomberg also ran an ad including several tweets, allegedly from Bernie bros, attempting to show that we were all big meanies. But as several of the so-called bros pointed out, including a number of women, some of the tweets were photoshopped and some were actually from Trump supporters. The Bloomberg campaign even attacked me personally, along with Bernie speechwriter David Sirota and campaign co-chair Nina Turner. In a February 2020 press release, he cited several of our tweets, including my tweets pointing out that he is an oligarch with 
yes, a worse criminal, criminal justice record than Donald Trump, to which I say, where is the lie? Now, I raise all of this Twitter nonsense only to point out that this is what powerful people do. Attempts to overwhelm truth and democracy by, let's say, flooding voters with TV ads to get on the debate stage despite having no organic support. Blitzing Americans with doctored quotes that exploit social media and hope that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. That's why we have to have serious conversations about how to make social media free and fair for everyone. Not just hope against the odds that the new megalomaniac billionaire owner will be more, bene more benevolent than the last one. Evidence suggests he won't be. That doesn't mean you're not right to want better than what we've got, but the solution won't come as easy as musk.net. So Robbie, I was really moved by a lot of what Batia had to say and wanted to reframe the argument away from this idea that anybody who's raising some concerns about what's going on with uh, Elon Musk's effort to buy Twitter is simply worried about Donald Trump coming back, which is not at all my concern. My concern is that as a leftist, I'm always looking for who's, where the power is coming from and whether that power is going to be an imbalance that hurts the people. And when you see billionaires who have enough money to try to buy elections and influence the markets and all of the things, uh, the corruption that we've seen, the criticisms we had of Nancy Pelosi and her ability to manipulate her position of power, to buy stocks and enrich herself. How could we not be similarly concerned with someone like Elon Musk? So I took an opportunity to look at what other billionaires have been doing on the app, looking at what Howard Schultz at Starbucks has been doing on the app, looking at what Michael Bloomberg has done. And I think there's a case to be made that there's not a lot of evidence that Elon Musk is going to be a better actor. What do you think? Sorry about my voice, which I'm losing like as we're doing this segment. But I think you're right to point out that Musk is not the magic solution to this problem that so many conservatives are making him out to be right mm -hmm. now. Like, no one person in charge of Twitter is going to solve the issue. Yeah, and it's hard, right? Because there are people who are advocating for certain Section 230 reforms, but some of them would really benefit, as we've talked about on the show before, platforms that are big enough to hire folks to do the kind of moderation that would be required if they were culpable for all of the content that got published on the site, right? There are really specific, you know, serious issues that have come up because these websites are not, um, they are private. They are not subject to the same First Amendment concerns, but because of their public influence and their influence in our democracy, the public has as much interest in them as they would other kinds of public media or public forums. And so we're all trying to deal in this newly emerging space and figure out what policies that we should, should set as a society. And that's going to be really tough work. And I think that we have to engage in that work and try to think about what kind of outcomes we want, what kind of world we want to live in, and kind of work backward from there, not hope that there's going to be kind of a magic poison pill. Yeah, no one person is going to come in and solve this problem. Yeah, everyone. yeah, it's, it's going to take the collective, Robbie, <laughs> the collective. All right, I'm going to go take a cough drop, and we'll be back in a minute with more Rising. Is CNN Plus doomed? Well, Warner Brothers Discovery suspended all external marketing spending for CNN Plus and laid off CNN's longtime chief financial officer as it decides what to do with the streaming service going forward, according to Axios. CNN Plus has about 150,000 subscribers so far, and Warner Brothers Discovery wants to eventually build one giant service around HBO Max. According to Axios, there's chatter that a live newscast is being floated to replace Chris Cuomo's primetime slot a change from, quote, personality-driven perspective programming. 
Not good. Yeah, I mean, the idea that one was emphasizing personality-driven content around these particular personalities already kind of uh, begs the question of what they were thinking over there. Especially, I gotta say, in a time of crisis when there's so many substantive issues to be talking about, it, it gets under my leftist crawl to think that that was the focus over there. But it's hard to believe that any changes they're uh, going for at this point could be uh, worse than when the choices they've made right now, given the colossal failure in views and, and subscribers that they've gotten so far. How do you think Chris Wallace feels about himself having gone from this perch at the most watched TV network to this failing streaming service? I mean, sometimes you gamble and you lose. <laughs> sometimes you gamble and lose. But it is a real shame because he was a real kind of bright spot over there at Fox. I think a lot of people, you know, across the political political spectrum really appreciated the job he did moderating debates and, you know, the beacon of integrity that he he managed to be, not just at Fox, but in a broader corporate media climate where, frankly, with the Cuomo scandals and everything else that has happened over the last few years, the whole, you know, obviously Roger Ailes debacle at Fox. I mean, it's been like one scandal after another at all of these networks. He's had his head above it all. And it is disappointing to see that he is one of the people who are taking the hit. But honestly, I'm not crying too hard for his uh, bank account at the end of all of this. Do you think this was just a failure of vision, like they're never going to get their subscribers to move to this model? Or is it in part CNN's like losing the credibility? I think it's probably a little of A, a little bit of B. I think I mentioned before that it makes sense to me that given the um, fact that most younger people are kind of cutting the cord to cable and moving away to watching most of their news online, the idea of trying to shift people from their traditional modes of viewership onto a more of an online space makes sense. It's something you're going to have to do eventually. But what they seem to have been missing is the whole point of watching online is that you don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to sign up for a subscription. It is free. And combining that move with the paid move, I think, was the mistake. Now, remember, I'm old enough to remember when Hulu... And a lot of these apps were free. And we all got used to the practice of watching certain kinds of shows on Hulu. We got hooked right. into certain series. And then when they implemented the paywall, we bent the knee because there was no way we were going to stop watching This Is Us or whatever it is that floats your boat. I don't the, think that CNN has this that. Is us? <laughs> it's the one with the family with Mandy Moore oh, and the guy from the Gilbert so Girls. Sappy. Yeah, look, I only watched about one season because I did not, in fact, pay to get past the paywall. <laughs> but most people did, right? Or most people got their brother, mother, boyfriends, right. sisters, cousins password and still kept watching. And I don't know what CNN has. That's the draw, given that their content ignores so much of what's exciting and good in the mainstream media. Well, we discussed reports last week that CNN Plus broad, broadcaster Chris Wallace was peeved over the network's unsuccessful launch. This week, Wallace's social media promo showed him hosting fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg to discuss the wrap dress and the future of fashion. But the iconic wrap dress was created 46 years ago. A survey held in the United States in May 2020 showed that 70% of respondents aged 18 to 34 years old stated they currently subscribed to a streaming service compared to just 49% of those aged 65 or above who said the same. Now, this could be a factor in why streaming audiences aren't being drawn to Wallace's show. Yeah, it's just not the kind of content that they're looking for. And it's a placeholder. It's a placeholder. I just don't see, like, I, I think about 
not even just my older relatives, but like my grandmother, but what my kind of mid, mid, mid range relatives do and how they consume content. They don't even use Netflix and the streaming services nearly as much as my generation does. I mean, most people in my generation don't even have, I don't say most, I'm making up statistics, but a lot of us don't even have televisions because cable is so much not a part of our lives. And again, like we are going to be the older generation very soon. I've been looking at a lot of these uh, polls we've been talking about, about young voters not supporting Biden and all of that. And it's always like 18 to 34, 18 to 34, which is a reminder that I'm no longer in that bracket. And I'm no longer in the cohort. So things are gonna change, right? And the older voter profile is gonna change. And again, I don't blame some of these networks for trying to get out in front of that. The question is, can they actually create good viral content and say what you want to say. There's uh, articles out right now about Netflix losing quite a bit of market share, um, fewer subscribers and talking about whether it's going to move to a format that kind of sounds a lot like a cable <laughs> subscription um, because it really is about whether or not you're creating the kind of content, creating the kind of shows that's going to keep people attached and invested in your service. And a lot of people have been complaining that even Netflix canceled a lot of very popular shows. Hasan Minhaj and a lot of the new shows on that network got the axe all of a sudden for reasons that people don't really understand. And Glow was one of my favorites that got canceled on Netflix. And people are complaining that that is exactly why they're willing to cut the cord. And it seems to me that CNN is having that same problem, that it just doesn't have the content to bring the proverbial boys to the yard. Yeah, you're right. Team Rising will join us next. Stick around. So we let Robbie go since, as you could probably tell, he was rapidly losing his voice. Get some rest, Robbie, uh, but let's press on without him. The DeSantis versus Disney drama over the so-called don't say gay bill continues. This time, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is targeting Disney's special status, which gives the company more autonomy to oversee what goes on on its property. Disney has enjoyed these privileges since 1968. DeSantis called a special legislative session on Tuesday to redraw two congressional districts in such a way that would split the Reedy Creek Improvement District where Disney is located. But critics of DeSantis' latest move say it could suppress the black vote. Here to discuss what many view as retaliation against Disney for speaking out against the parental rights education law dubbed Don't Say Gay Bill and potential impact on voters are Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News and Newsweek contributor Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So, Denise, do you see this as retaliation for Disney's winging in on the Don't Say Gay Bill? <laughs> yeah. So what I envision is that DeSantis, as the governor, is leveraging all of the power that he has to get the corporation to revisit its policies. I think retaliation is uh, one way to look at it. I think it's also uh, what it, it could be is an invitation to come to the table to talk about the specifics of what is most appropriate to be included. So part of the problem that I see with both the push for what people are call, calling wokeness, right? And mm -hmm. the push against a, an awareness of social injustices and a drive to change those injustices 
quickly is this idea that there is a battle that is happening and there is not a compromise and a conversation about what is appropriate under what circumstances and and when. And that is what I would like to see more of is that parents are better informed about why certain curricula is chosen, that they are presented with the age appropriate, developmentally appropriate rationales for why we are talking about specific issues. And one of the things that I would like to say just off the top is I don't ever want to see a circumstance where the history of Black Americans in this country is married to any other thing that is considered controversial because what we can't have is for people to be resisting and removing our history from textbooks when it's so incredibly critical to the to the development, the founding, and the evolution and perfecting of this union. Well, I have to follow up and ask you, what specifically do you think are the types of, you know, teachings that are going too far that you would recommend be taken away as a compromise? Because a lot of the pushback from the left has been the bill amounts to uh, banning gay teachers from being able to reference the fact that they're gay in the classroom and stuff like that. Can you be more specific about what you think that compromise would look like? Yeah, and I don't know that I'm suggesting that anything needs to be taken away. And that's part of the problem here is the criteria, right, that the pushback is providing is not clear about what they feel is inappropriate or what they feel Mm. is going too far, as well as those who are implementing the curricula haven't, I think, done um, a thorough job of pulling parents into and educators into the conversation, the evolution about why we are approaching it the way that they are. So there's a, it's just a push back and forth. Uh, I will say that from what I have read about the don't say gay bill about the pushback there is really about younger children between, you know, I think it's kindergarten through third grade, as well as some of the content that is being discussed, particularly in regard to sex education. And of course they've made critical race theory, critical race theory, uh, Mm -hmm. the resistance to that with it. And so to me, I think we are asking our society to evolve very rapidly. Nothing wrong with that, because for me, transformative leadership is about quick change. However, we also have to realize there are very significant pockets of our society where the very things we are talking about are themselves uh, demonized. The idea of being woke, for example, the idea that you're a social justice warrior is legitimately critiqued. And so we need to both educate the adults as well as educating the children. And I think there's just been an implementation failure in how all of that has happened. And that has caused a lot of the pushback. And let's be real. We are not going to get 100% of people to go, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, let's do that. But what is the best way to help people understand what is happening? And are there any parts of the curricula that maybe do go too far at a young age? Well, Max, what do you think? Is this about bringing the broad left to the table, using redistricting, uh, you know, splitting a black district as a way to have a conversation that the left maybe not isn't willing to have about the kind of overreaches that may or may not be happening in schools? Or is just just a pretext to keep, you know, drawing districts in a way that is uh, electorally advantageous to Republicans? The second one. <laughs> um, I mean, like, you know, and, and to be fair, you know, like if, you know, the people in power were as thoughtful and conscientious as Denise, my answer might be different. But the mm-hmm. fact is they're not. Right. I mean, I think that Ron DeSantis, I can say quite confidently that, yes, this is retaliation because that's how Ron DeSantis operates. He's very much a Republican in the Trumpian mold. And we actually 
in it had a great interview a couple months ago on the Real News Network for the Mark Steiner Show with uh, Representative Anna Eskamani about how you can kind of track DeSantis's political trajectory across this sort of culture war, own the libs kind of um, style, right? Because it it really stirs up the base. But the problem is, is that it can have really disastrous effects that end up hurting working Floridians, regardless of their color, regardless of where in the state that they live. And that, you know, is my main sort of critique is that, like Denise said, um, yeah, I, I also, you know, grew up conservative as a person of color. I definitely understand and, and acknowledge that there are very real concerns that people can have against things like what they call wokeness or what we perceive to be social justice warriors. I felt that myself. But the problem is, you know, like, as I said, the more that you go on, the more that you realize that those political issues end up sort of becoming the focus at the expense of the things that really materially impact your life. And, you know, just to to give kind of two important caveats as we continue to wade into this discussion, right? Because another thing Denise said is that um, we don't want to be erasing history. That's already happening in Florida. The Stop Woke Act is already having impacts of people being censored or censoring themselves. Michael Sinato wrote a great column at The Real News about how academics and teachers are already getting censored um, because of the Stop Woke Act before it was actually signed into law. But here's the thing. When it comes to the quote-unquote don't say gay bill – you know, DeSantis and Republicans are constantly stressing the fact that, like, this is reasonable because what we're saying is that you can't have, you know, any sort of lessons that reference gender identity between kindergarten and third grade. Who would disagree with that? Kindergartners or little kids, they're playing around. Why do they need to learn about that? Right. So it seems innocuous. But if you look closer at the bill. There are two things to point out. One is that there are provisions about, you know, lessons that are developmentally or age appropriate that extend well beyond um, the the third grade and that um, people in Florida are already looking for ways to sort of apply that to other realms of K through 12 education. The second is just like the abortion bills, just like the other anti-LGBTQ bills in the United States, this is spawning um, more bills like it and worse mm-hmm. bills in other states around the country. Kansas is looking at a similar bill that would uh, outlaw any materials depicting sex- homosexuality of any kind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Not even sexual, just like if you show two gay people, like that is illegal. Tennessee, Indiana, these types of bills are cropping up all over the place. So it's not a contained thing to Florida. It's not about, you know, like just limiting this from kindergarten to third grade. It's a way of getting in the door to expand this sort of attack on perceived, quote unquote, wokeness that isn't actually addressing the real things that Floridians are desperately need to address. This is the last thing I'll say and I'll shut up because we can't be talking about this unless we acknowledge the fact that Florida ranks second in the in the United States as the state with the highest income inequality behind, Mm. I think, Wyoming, that there's things like a nursing home crisis that legislators are actively um, uh, creating by by basically eliminating safe nursing to patient ratios. And unions have been decrying this for a while. And Miami is going to basically be underwater in our lifetimes. There are a lot of really pressing issues in Florida that we are not focusing on because DeSantis is really whipping up these um, culture war sentiments, which, as he said, may stem from legitimate places, but they're not actually addressing the things that are hurting working Floridians. Yeah, I think that's a solid point there, Max. Well, meanwhile, Colorado Governor Jared Polis is welcoming companies like Disney and Twitter in. Uh, It it feels like uh, 
here's a tweet that we have up here. Florida's authoritarian socialist attacks on the private sector are driving business away. In Colorado, we don't meddle in affairs of companies like Disney or Twitter. Hey, Disney, we're ready for Mountain Disneyland. In Twitter, we're ready for Twitter HQ2, whoever your owners are. I don't know, climate-wise, if we're going to want to do uh, snow time. <laughs> Winter Disney, I don't know, maybe there could be an appetite for it, but you know, Denise, what do you make of these kinds of bids? Is it just cynical? Well, I mean, I think I, I appreciated, frankly, his sort of gangster uh, <laughs> in, in tweeting that, honestly. And I think so for me, looking at all of this, the idea is how do we come to the table for a resolution? I am not interested in endless banter, endless pushback, and, you know, this sort of tug of war thing. I want to get to a resolution. And so if the, the governor of Colorado um you know, advertising to large businesses in a state that is also taking a position on this gets people to come to the table and have a real discussion about what is important. What are we teaching our children about these very important social issues and at what age is appropriate to teach what? That should always be the focus. And if we allow folks to play these political footballs where they're flexing their muscle at each other, we're missing the whole point. So we, the people, need to be keeping their eyes on the ball and saying, does this get us closer to the table at looking at what it is we're teaching and when? Uh, because that is the whole point. You know, I, I think, you know, to Max's point earlier, this idea of some of the critique that was happening and some of the things that are in the law, like this unsolicited strategies. I don't even know what that means. I'm assuming mm -hmm. it's operationally defined somewhere in the small print, but I don't know what it means that you can outlaw or uh, reject curricula based on unsolicited strategies. I'm assuming if the parents don't want it, then you can't teach it. And if that is the criteria that we're going to use, I would be afraid that we're at the time of civil rights, where maybe six of 10 white Americans were like kind of okay with civil rights. Would we even be able to have this conversation today? So there are ways in which I absolutely support parental involvement in the process of aiding uh, educating children and even the decision about what and when, but that needs to be a dialogue and a conversation. And we also need to really include our kids in these conversations as well. And I can tell you as a parent that what I knew at eight is a lot different than what my children and their peers were exposed to at eight years of age. And part of that is because of technology mm -hmm. and what their peers expose them to as well. Well, Max, you made this point that this is all a bait and switch from focusing on some of the more substantive, you know, economic material issues that are going on in the state. I will never forget that Florida is a state where Trump won and also at the same time passed a $15 minimum wage, uh, approved of a $15 minimum wage ballot measure with 60% of the vote. I mean, when you see a more liberal state, you know, like Colorado saying, okay, my response to these bills is to say, just come here and move here. Is there a part of you that wishes there was a conversation at that moment about how, hey, I should be able to draw you and your workers and your interests here, not because of, you know, tax breaks or to posture over a kind of anti-wokeness bill, but to say we can actually offer a better standard of life and living here because we have a better social safety net, because we respect our citizens, because we pay our laborers a fair wage, those kinds of conversations. Oh, 
man. I got caught for a second being like, oh, wouldn't that be a beautiful America to live in? <laughs> like, like, because the sad thing is, is that um, I think that, yeah, that would be great. The problem is, is that we've con consistently gone in the opposite direction, right? I mean, where states essentially vie with each other to entice corporations to move there by, um, like I said, going in the opposite direction, by offering fewer regulations and protections and social safety nets for workers. I grew up in California. This is the battle that we always had with Arizona and Texas. They said, hey, you know, if you don't want to be regulated, come over here. We'll let you, you know, kind of set up shop and do whatever the hell you want. This is there's And there's longstanding precedent for this in the United States before many corporations uh, through the um, open doors of free trade agreements in the era of neoliberalism were able to move to other countries and take advantage of cheap uh, labor sources and fewer environmental regulations and worker protections in places like Mexico and, and so on and so forth. Before they did that, a lot of corporations went to the South because the South was very mm. anti-union. There were a lot of anti-union um, kind of built-in structures in the law that enabled um, companies to operate uh, at cheaper costs than they would in more uh, unionized parts of the country. So like I said, we kind of you know incentivize business in other states by essentially always undercutting workers. And that is what is endlessly frustrating for me. But I'll tell you something, and I imagine both of you kind of felt the same way when, when you were reading about the DeSantis stuff, is there does seem to be something kind of paradigm shifting here on the right, right? Because as I think the article mentioned, a lot of these sweetheart deals that corporations get with huge tax breaks, with huge you know public funds that go towards building their infrastructure and yada, yada, yada. A lot of that has been a staple of the right wing strategy to say that like we are the one we are the ones who bring the job creators to mm. the state. We deliver jobs to people. DeSantis is actively going against what I think is the number one private employer in his state, mm. which is really significant. And I also think as much as I hate to say it feels kind of smart. It, it's a gamble, but it could actually work because. He's been looking for a convenient target to pit his anti-wokeness to, you know, what I see as a very anti-worker sort of agenda. And in Disney, he has found it. Mm -hmm. And Disney is such a massive and, uh, and, and incredibly wealthy and powerful corporation that it's hard to sympathize with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so may not actually be that sympathetic uh, if DeSantis is going after uh, a company that was essentially allowed to have its own sovereign territory in the state, right? And so I do wonder where this will go. But obviously, first and foremost, I'm thinking about all the workers, especially many black and Latino workers who are employed by Disney in the state, what this will mean for them. And I honestly don't know where it will go, but I think it is significant and an, an evolution in the kind of quote unquote populist right strategy that doesn't fit to the old Republican paradigms that we grew up with. Well, I look forward to continuing this conversation with both of you. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Denise, for joining me today. Thanks, Thank you. Mike. Good to see you. We'll have more rising after this. A new survey from the Pew Research Center found that the top concerns of black Americans are crime, the economy, and housing. Newsweek contributor Denise Long argues that the Biden administration has failed on all three of these issues, but it's not just President Biden and VP Harris, Democrats at large, including the Congressional Black Caucus, have failed black America for generations. 
Here to discuss is Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News, and Newsweek's contributor, Denise Long. Welcome to the show to you both. Um, Denise, so what do you think, I, I mean, since you're the one that, that kind of issued the criticism, I mean, I think many of us agree with you. Crime is up. The economy doesn't look so great. Housing is very difficult, and, and, and pricing, uh, the prices are, are outrageous for most people. So what would you recommend, uh, what would be your solutions to this? Like, what could the Biden administration do better? Yeah, so good morning. I, part of it is, I think, uh, for both Democrats and Republicans is recognizing the similarities that Black Americans have, categorical, categorical similarities of Black American primary concerns and the larger part of America, but also recognizing the nuance of that, right? So when you think about Black Americans who live in an urban environment um, and uh, more of a multifamily type of living situation and Black Americans who live in single-family housing situations, uh, I think for the Biden administration, I know that what uh, free people are looking for in many ways is um, a push for living wages, just like all Americans, but also really recognizing the ways the system of um, lending the system of employment has discriminated against Black Americans for generations to present day and how that has contributed to some of the wealth inequality that makes these issues so salient in Black American life. So in many ways, Black Americans are looking for Biden to act on H.R. 40, not in its current iteration, because it's uh, mostly a study and the way it's being structured by those who are leading it um, won't lead to what free people are looking for. But those things are important. And reparations is important to addressing the issues uh, and putting wealth back into the pockets of the people who it's been taken from and stolen from. Now, Max, there has been a lot of attention paid toward, to the fact that Donald Trump got a uh, historically large hunk of the black vote uh, in terms of recent elections, specifically the black male vote. And of course, many more Latinos than folks expected voted for Donald Trump, given the nature of a lot of his comments, especially early in his 2016 campaign. What do you make? of the success with those groups and the continued gap between the level of Latino inroads that have been made by Republicans in the you know 30s percent versus 18 percent of black men, I think it was, in single digits of, of black women, I think it was about 8 percent. To what do you attribute that gap? Well, I mean, like it's, I guess this is a squishy answer, but it's a number of things, right? <laughs> you know, but um, I think like there's actually something worthwhile um, to, to kind of unpack there, right? Because I think, you know, as, as every one of us here has probably said more times than we can count, uh, black people, Latino people are not monoliths, right? You know, mm -hmm. like we, we are human beings who have our own lives and our own like particular circumstances that we care about. We are also part of a society and have shared concerns and so on and so forth. There's always a bit of a negotiation between those individual localized concerns, the communities with which you identify, the ideologies that you hold, so on and so forth. Again, that may seem basic as hell, but it's something that we always conveniently forget whenever 
particularly in mainstream media or in the kind of political consultancy class, we are trying to understand these trends. And then we get stuff like, like, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton saying she carries hot sauce with her, right? Or, you know, like, uh, uh, any, hey, that any was apparently Republic- true, <laughs> <laughs> which is like great, but it's like saying so as an appeal to the black vote is kind right. of like, well, or, or what was Cringe. it? Dia Hillary, uh, or your abuela. Like, so you right. end up getting these really dumb, reductive sort of cosplaying attempts to appeal to very diverse, um, you know, uh, 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 groups of people. And you're largely missing kind of the point of what's driving people's politics. So the reason that I say that is because one thing that I recall very distinctly as uh, a Latino who grew up very Catholic, very conservative uh, in the era when, you know, folks on the radio like Larry Elder were speaking to people like me and were speaking against this, what they saw as the sort of rising democratic hegemony of quote, of what would come to be called identity politics. There is something in that message that is very appealing to people of color, to, I imagine, you know, um, black communities and, and individuals as well, because what folks like Larry said at that time was that the left wants you to be a victim. The left wants you to be a number in this sort of larger, quote unquote, kind of oppressed community. And, but yet they're squashing your individuality. Right. And so there was an extra component there as a right wing you know, person of color where voting a certain way was a way to sort of claim my individuality. It was a way mm-hmm. to claim my independence. It was a way to say, I am not going with the crowd that expects me to be a Democrat. I am a free individual, free minded person who is making my own choice in voting, you know, Republican and stuff like that. So like there is an additional kind of component that is part of our want and need to be seen as individuals and to express that individuality by kind of bucking the sort of political trends that we're hearing about in the media or not. Does that does that make sense? Does that resonate, Denise or, or Bree or, or Kim with y'all? Yeah, so I'd say for me, in thinking about writing the piece as a multi-generational Black American, seventh gen, uh, descendant of slaves, plus all the other stuff that's a part of who I am and my makeup, is um, there are ways that I think Democrats do indeed need um, non-white people to be dependent upon them, right? There are ways that they boogeyman the Republican Party and Black people end up thinking that they can't go to party meetings, that Republicans don't want them in the party, that everybody who's a Republican is racist, who is not Black, and every Black person who's a Republican is, you know, you've heard the language, I don't usually use it, but they're a coon, they're a sellout, and all of that kind of stuff. And there are ways that the left feeds those narratives in order to keep their base, right? There are ways that they talk about voting rights as if our constitutional right to vote is up for reauthorization every generation when it is not. So they lack clarity on exactly what it is they're looking to reauthorize. And I think that's very intentional. It creates a situation where the left feels like daddy, right? And the right feels like the boogeyman that daddy is protecting you from. And so that is why I feel that addressing the racial inequality both from policy, but also by repairing the harm that American policies have created to the democratic base, which is black Americans, freed people who, whose ancestors were slaves, comprised 70, 80% of black Americans. Reparations would absolutely decimate the democratic base and the need for people to continually rely on their protection of the social safety net, their protection from the boogeymen who are on the right, who 
want small government. I want small government too. However, our government has done a lot to damage freed people, black Americans, and they need to do a lot to fix that. And when we're there, the landscape of Democrats and Republican Party will change significantly. And I think Democrats know that and reparations is a threat to their base. And that's why they're not doing it, which is why I call for Republicans to see that and to fix it. Not to mention the reason the GOP has its name as the gallant old party, because it was deeply committed to the needs of freed people post-emancipation. So Denise, I'm inclined to agree with you that there are gains to trade here, that Republicans could make a bid for uh, black voters, that the Democratic Party hasn't done nearly enough to serve black voters, especially given what a loyal voting base it has been. But in your article, you point to the kinds of things Republicans can do. You're talking about reparations now. You talk about stopping vilifying 1619 and saying it can be both 1619 and, you know, historically val you know, validated over time dates and to not play these kind of culture war games. Of course, that is the opposite of what they're doing. And it's not just that the Democratic Party is painted the uh, Republican Party as a boogeyman. As you just you know mentioned, the Republican Party has had no problem painting itself in those terms and using a kind of um, uh, 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 bait, baiting, race baiting rhetoric, um, you know, classically saying we used to be able to say inward, 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 and now we just use all these other epithets to get, get away with the same kind of rhetoric that we used back in the 50s. Do you see it as plausible? that the Republicans would see this opportunity and take this kind of heel turn, given the kinds of things they are focusing on now to, to win. Yeah, so this is a very interesting point that you're making because I had this conversation the other day in regard to this. There are many, many politicians out here and we should be asking ourselves, who is getting the mic and who is elevated to a position of legitimacy as a spokesperson for the party. So those who are fighting CRT, for example, which is a euphemism for anything that we're not ready to accept, right? I think part of those of us in the populace who are Republican, who are right-leaning, who are left-leaning, need to really call out those people and the party leadership. Do I see it as plausible? We don't have another choice. Are we mm -hmm. to continue to let the extremes drive the narrative of what is acceptable? The extremes drive the narrative of who the party is and what the party is. I am a Republican officially, right? I am not the same and I would not leave the same as uh, DeSantis, for example, when it comes to things like CRT and the like. And so I think there are ways that we have to reclaim our political institution and we have to delegitimize those who aren't willing, right, to compromise and come to the table to get things done. Now, how do we do that? We do that by voting. But what are the other ways that we can put pressure on calling the governor's mansion, on, you know, writing letters to the president, on talking to media about who they choose to elevate of all the people in Congress, right, the 500 some odd people? Why is it only that some people are continually in the news cycle? Why aren't media, for example, elevating the voices and needs of the people and marginalizing those people who are continuing to put us in this cycle of polarization. So it falls on all of us, including our institutions, media being a part of it. Mm, well, I, I blame CNN Plus. <laughs> Thank you both, uh, Max <laughs> yeah. and Denise, for joining us today. Thanks, Thank you. We'll have more rising after this. America has a homelessness crisis, and the progressive left is to blame. That's according to Seneca Scott, candidate for mayor in Oakland, California, who's described the situation in his city as Mad Max. He painted a portrait for us in his latest op-ed in Newsweek, 
highlighting its, quote, encampments and open-air drug markets that rival any third-world country, lined with countless tents, RVs, makeshift shacks, and hundreds of burned-out and gutted vehicles of all shapes and sizes. Scott called out to the left's failure to solve this ongoing crisis, effectively leaving those unsheltered out on the streets and politically unhoused. Here to discuss how the Democrats' paltry housing policies are driving away voters from Team Blue is Oakland, California mayoral candidate Seneca Scott. Seneca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. And hey, listen, I am in Los Angeles. I am, I, I've been in the Venice Beach area for the last uh, about 10 years. So I see it for myself, the homelessness crisis and how it has just exploded over the years. So what do you think it is specifically? I would love to know this myself. What do you think it is that the progressive Democrats are doing that is making the situation worse or not helping the situation at all? That's a great question, Kim. So I would say the introduction may be a little slanted. It's not the progressive left's fault we have a homeless crisis. It is born of financial desperation, but that financial desperation has created conditions where people can no longer compete economically. And when people cannot compete economically, they begin to compete for more superiority. And that's the, the soldiers on the front line who are weaponized by, by our elite who actually don't care much about us. So if you look at the actual policies that have led to um, this situation, you have to point to housing first policies and the relaxing of our drug laws. And it's a complicated situation because we know that the, the drug, school to drug pipeline, the drug war was a dismal failure. We know that the drug prices are taking a new escalation with fentanyl and the, the change in how methamphetamines are made. And now we're in a quagmire where we don't actually have existing laws or legislation that allow us to commit people who are mentally unstable, who are a danger to themselves. But as a matter of fact, 90% of Californians, as you guys probably know, want to see this happen. So I think it's a matter of political will and public will. The public will is confused because we want to do good and we, we're well-meaning, but our political will is really uh, it's the big part right now. And that's why I think the, where the progressive left is having an issue. Uh, let me ask you this. It, I, about 25% of the homeless population across the country is seriously mentally ill. 45% have some degree of mental illness. I think, I don't know about the kind of liberal left who runs California, but the, I think, progressive leftists would say that part of the way to address this problem has to be about restoring the mental health network that was largely decimated in the 1970s and also addressing um, the ongoing drug issues. What do you think the right's answer to this problem is if it's being framed as uh, a, left, a lefty failure? The right doesn't have any answers as well. Mm. And that's the issue of why I think people need to start to look outside of these parties and look to their neighbors and take a grassroots approach to building back up our local politics. When you talk to neighbors across the political spectrum, especially in major cities, you find that we have a large overlap of the things that we want to see. We want public safety. We want quality education for our children so that they can compete in today's global society. And we don't want 
uh, our taxes to be wasted from people who then mock us and then shame us for wanting to see some, some sort of change. So I think the right doesn't have any answers. The left is shown not to have any answers. They have good intentions, but you know what the saying is about good intention. And I think that we're seeing that play out right now in Oakland. So politically, I think the biggest thing we need to do is stop. You brought up a really good point about the, the Reagan era and getting rid of the, the, the mental health. You know how many times I've heard that from activists? Hmm. How many times will we say we know what the problem is but when you, you challenge these activists to show proof of concept that they're actually drafting legislation or they're actually behind these things conceptually, and then you don't get the right answer. You get a, a forever moving goalpost, and housing first activists have moved that goalpost in Oakland to now the, the man is housing with no strings attached. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would push back a, li a little bit, um, even with Brianna, kind of what you were mentioning about progressive left versus liberal left here in California. And in my experience, and Seneca would love to get your perspective on this, but the progressive left out here actually has gone to almost an extreme with it, it seems, where the the they're advocating for the homeless population to stay where they are. You know, it's like, leave them alone. Why can't you just let them be? They're free, you know, they're people that deserve dignity and the dignity is to allow them to stay where they are, whereas the liberal left has actually tried to move them, wanted to move them or build or uh, take them somewhere else. And we see activists actually show up and say, no, don't don't move them. Don't you dare like get them out of these parks. Like, how dare you? You're a terrible person for doing that. And then on the right, the problem, like what you're mentioning, Seneca, their solution is to criminalize, uh, you know, go back to criminalization. So actually, it's almost like the liberal left has almost the best of the three solutions, which is move them into housing. But they seem to get stopped on both sides, the progressive left and the right. The right saying, don't give them things. How dare you? And then the progressive left saying, leave them alone. Let them be. Let them be free the way they are. Seneca, what do you think of that? I so agree with that analysis. And it's very true. We had a situation that was exactly like that at a tennis court by Lake Merritt that they wanted to redo for the public. And we had a homeless encampment in this tennis court for two years. At first, it was supported by the community because they had nowhere to go. Once the city actually got housing and a hotel available, the majority left. There were a few holdouts, and those holdouts didn't want to move because of the moral cause of them being able to live wherever they want. The activists came out in large, who were largely white, I organized a, a protest, a counter-protest of families, mostly uh, black mothers and their children, and we played tennis right in front of those few remaining holdout encampments, and we forced them to admit that housing had been offered and they had refused it because they wanted the right to live wherever they wanted. And that was actually a turning point in Oakland for exposing some of these activists. We won over major housing activists who actually want to help because of that incident who saw that they were being led down a dangerous path. So this is a larger issue. Is you have, let's take Wood Street that's mentioned in, in my op-ed. If you go to Wood Street, there's about a lot of different communities. You have some people who are just completely shut out. You have other places that call themselves intentional communities. And when you go there, most of them are actually shut out too, but they have these quasi-socialistic fantasies uh, anti-work or we're just going to do whatever we want um, 
But they're doing it on the shoulders of largely black, elderly, mentally ill, drug addicted black people who have not consented to this movement. And that's why I draw my personal line and I had to step up and say something against these, I don't like to call them activists, but against these, these performative um, you know, activists who are in Oakland who really are contemptuous, I believe, of the black community, of poor people. And it, it's displaying itself in a very weird way. I don't have any other explanation for it, Cam. Yeah, I've done a, a lot of uh, reporting in my time about kind of lefty excesses, and certainly there, I'm sure there are some overreaches. I did a quick Google of uh, LA progressive groups. It seems like one called LA progressives av uh, as advocating for building housing as a way to end homelessness. And in my experience, it's often liberals who are resisting building houses, ho housing for homelessness with an NIMBY kind of push to say, I don't want these people in my neighborhood. So there certainly are bad actors on every right. side of this. Right. I really appreciate you um, spending the time with us today, Seneca. Thank you. Um, is that it? That, that is it. And we okay. have more rising <laughs> after this. A UK court has ruled that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange will be extradited to the US. This comes as the latest update in the long legal battle for Assange. Julian Assange's wife had this to say in response. Boris Johnson and Priti Patel can stop this at any time. They can stop it today. They can stop this nightmare today and return Julian to his family. They can do the right thing and enforce Article 4 of the U.S.-U.K. Extradition Treaty, which prohibits extraditions for political offenses. Right now, they're in breach of their own treaty. This is a political case. And with the signature of the magistrate, this now passes squarely into the political domain. Free Julian Assange. So, you know, Julian's defense has been fighting this, arguing that there's a high suicide risk, um, you know, uh, arguing that it will, you know, violate the prohibition against torture and set an alarming precedent for publishers and journalists around the world. That's from Amnesty International. You know, does this come as a surprise to you? How are you feeling about this? Well, I mean, obviously, I think he's going to be appealing it. I know he has the right to appeal. Um, I, I'm a little bit torn on whether or not he should. Some of me just thinks uh, he should just get this over with, come to the U.S., face trial, allow many of us, or at least try to pressure the Biden, and definitely try to do it under the Biden administration, I would think, to pressure the Biden administration to um, drop the charges or to pardon him or something once this process gets going. But as he's being held in this Belmarsh, um, where, where is he? He's in uh, Belmarsh prison in London. He And he joined this hearing virtually. Um, you know, I think that as this drags on, he just continues to sit there. And I, I from what I understand, the conditions there are not great. Mm. So part of me, I mean, but look, you're the lawyer. So maybe you could, you know, shed some light on this a little bit more. But, you know, shouldn't at some point do you just think, OK, I'm not going to appeal anymore because he's, it's not like it'd be one thing if he was on house arrest. It'd be one thing if he was out and about and then he would just continue to appeal this extradition. But he's in a bad situation as it is. I almost just feel like you're gamble it I, I because what's the worst that's going to happen to you you're still stuck in this place and prolonging potentially the incarceration i what do you think well i don't know i think the sentence that he's facing is 
extreme. I don't think it's one of these right. situations where, you know, uh, if he were sentenced, he would get time served. Uh, and I, I assume the belief is that he would get a, be a better fair hearing in the UK judicial system. We all know what the limits of our own are. And I would, I would hazard a guess that our uh, conditions in jail, our jail conditions are not any better than what he's experiencing right now either. Uh, there is also the question of what the political valence of this is going to be in the United States. There's been very little, I think, in the grand scheme of things in terms of agitation on his behalf. The media here has been either silent or antagonistic, even right. many people on the left, progressives. I remember getting questions about Julian Assange in the context of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and even Bernie wasn't an especially outspoken supporter of Julian mm -hmm. Assange at the time. Most of his advocates at this time are people who have themselves been kind of cordoned off to fringe elements of our own media sphere. People like Glenn Greenwald, who have been, you know, assiduously ringing the bell on, on Julian Assange and these kinds of issues and issues regarding fr press freedom. But it just has not been framed for the press in that way as a, as a freedom issue uh, for the, pop uh, the public in this way. Here, it has been largely about this same issue of, you know, kind of uh, the 2016 election, who's responsible, who's leaking documents in a way that is uh, um, inopportune for the Democratic Party. And for those kinds of reasons, it's been politicized in a way where the cohort that is more likely to come to his defense, the broad left, a lot of it sees him as an enemy. Right. Well, you know, and so there is something to that. I, I actually see a growing base of support coming from the right mm. actually in support of Julian Assange. So there is some, there's maybe some movement going on there because he is being villainized by the left as this, mm. you know, the, the one that fed, uh, that, that ruined Hillary Clinton and, and whatnot. So I can understand that, that hesitation. I don't think though that he would get a trial at all in Britain from what I understand. They don't have mm. charges against him. I think it's just the United States. So if he's held that you know, the only question is whether or not they're willing to extradite him. I don't think it's a obviously they are. I don't think it's a question. I, I mean, I, I think they were never going to protect him. They're too, they've got too much relationship with the United States to, to defy the U S legal system like that. Mm -hmm. So it is just to me kicking the can down the road. And the only thing that he's maybe kicking the can down for is a, is hope that somebody in the admin that Biden or maybe the next administration would actually drop the charges against him, that there would maybe be public pressure. But I actually think if he were here in the United States, because I get it, there's very little press surrounding Julian Assange. They've largely stayed silent. But perhaps if he was here and the trial was happening, there would be more press. There would be more of a light shed on it. And the press maybe would say, well, this is a bit dangerous. Maybe finally the Washington Post and the New York Times would come forward saying, didn't really do a whole lot different than the stuff we've done in the past and the stuff that we plan to do in the future. So maybe, but maybe, this is, maybe. Yeah. And, and look, when I, when I say he'll get a fair hearing in, in the in the UK, I mean like he'll get a fair hearing in terms of publicity in the press. Because I got to say, I went to a Julian Assange protest maybe around this time last year, last January or so, um, yeah. just up in front of the up embassy row at the at the embassy here. And, you know, I'd love to say there were thousands of people and it was very well attended, but that's just not the way it is. Right. It's a, it's a right. really ragtag group. And you, maybe you're right that if we have a better focal point for these kind of protests, as opposed to just, you know, the random British embassy on a quiet street in Washington, D.C., it would attract more attention. But 
in all likelihood, they will anticipate this and put him somewhere. Most of our prisons are kind of off in the nether regions for other kinds of political regions, right, reasons, right, to kind of disenfranchise and yeah. keep out of mind our two million strong prison population. And I'm hopeful that if this is the event eventuality, this is what happens and he's extradited here, that it will have some positive upside. But I have to believe his legal team has been fighting so hard to keep this from happening, in part because they're not especially optimistic about what the outcome will be. But I look forward to getting yeah. a closer look at um, what this decision actually says and why they decided to finally extradite. Well, maybe if we're, you know, because I was at the same protest, but here in L.A. Mm. Uh, last April as well for Julian mm. Assange. And I, and I agree, it wasn't a it wasn't a large turnout. We marched our way over to CNN, you know, trying to get some exposure for Julian Assange, hoping that they'd maybe cover it. They, of course, did not. So, I mean, I hear you. But maybe this time maybe. you and I are here now. Right. <laughs> doing this. It's true. So it's true. Maybe that there would be more exposure. At least we, you know, here on Rising would be talking about it and trying to get exposure out there for him. Yeah. So. But yeah, it's a dismal situation for Julian Assange yeah. and for the free press. Yeah, and for his family. Yeah, terrible. All right, well, we will have more rising after this. Thanks so much for watching. We have some new, some new updates on the origin of COVID mystery to go over with you. The Wuhan Institute of Virology now has the right to ask a partnering lab in the U.S. to delete data this is according to legal documents obtained by the U.S. Right to Know. This comes after, after more news. According to a new letter, recent reporting contradicts what an attorney for a key virologist in this saga, Kristen Anderson, told Congress previously, specifically the claim that he was not aware of any effort to suppress any particular theory about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Joining us now to discuss is Emily Kopp, reporter at U.S. Right to Know. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Great to be here. So what's going on? Help us unpack what's new here. Right. So um, I think what's important to clarify is that this agreement um, goes back even before the pandemic. But um, I think what it shows is that um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and um, the Chinese Academy of Sciences had an interest in ensuring that it could delete important data um, if it's so needed. Um, and so I think this just raises a lot of questions about, you know, first, why um, a you know scientific institution would require this provision in a you know legal agreement, and then you know second, why you know U.S. virologists and this U.S. lab in Texas would agree to such a provision, um, and another important thing to note here is that the Texas lab is publicly funded, so um, that raises a myriad of legal questions um, about records retention. And, um, you know, my organization is really focused on um, submitting FOIA requests and um, putting more information into the public sphere. And this sort of, you know, raises some questions. Are there clues here related to the origins of COVID that um, we can't access because um, U.S. publicly funded institutions agreed to delete data on behalf of um, the WIV? So this is so this is legally they're allowed to do this. Do we know why why they were granted the legal right to delete the data? Because it wasn't just or was this just a request by Wuhan Institute and they said, yeah, OK, we'll do it. Or was this actually a legal 
I mean, they're allowed to legally to do this for some reason. Is it because the, the information's the property of China and the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Yeah, I think there are a lot of um, unknowns here. So this is a memorandum of understanding, which isn't quite a contract, but it's sort of a legal agreement um, commonly entered into between research institutions. Um, and it's not clear who wrote it, but there are some clues. There are some sort of um, clunky or unusual provisions in this that suggest it might have been written by Chinese partners and sort of agreed to by the the lab in Texas. Um, and so, so yeah, so I think the unknowns here are um, if this was, you know, purely academic work, um, you know, typically we would want that work to benefit society and to be public. Um, so why was there this requirement that, you know, um, if either of the labs asked all of the data and documents related to this collaboration would be deleted? Um, and, you know, looking at this BSL-4, the highest maximum uh, biocontainment lab in Texas, why they would agree to it. Um, you know, I think there was this push to understand what sort of, you know, high-risk virology research was going on in China. Um, and so perhaps labs in the U.S. were willing to enter into uh, let's just say legally shaky agreements in order to gain some insight into what was going on. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, clearly, if there were clues to the COVID origin story at this lab in Texas, we might not even know about them because of this provision. Mm. Can you give me a sense of what level of investigations, how many investigations or you know legal actions are going on trying to get to the root of what caused the virus? Because you would think something of this magnitude would have... Um, a level of inquiry surrounding it that was at least as notable and I'd say covered by the press as something like inquiries into Trump's finances and the like. But I feel like I know very little about how much is going into getting at the bottom of the origin story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that goes to sort of the more recent letter from um, from congressional Republicans surrounding um, whether or not Christian Anderson was being a virologist um, in California was being perfectly honest when he said that he wasn't involved in any efforts to suppress um, any theory about the COVID origin story. Essentially, what we've seen over the last two years is um, virologists saying one thing in public and then another thing in private. Um, and what my organization, U.S. Right to Know, has found through FOIA requests is that um, at the same time, many virologists and scientists were saying any sort of implication that this, you know, novel coronavirus could have come from um, the novel coronavirus labs in Wuhan is a conspiracy theory. They were saying in private amongst each other um, that that was a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. And um, some features of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, are a little bit unusual and may point to it not having arisen in nature. Um, so I think there's this uh, kind of false consensus um, in the press uh, built sort of on these um, not totally truthful um, uh, public statements. And, um, you know, another thing I'll say is that uh, our organization gets a lot of flack just for looking into this. And so any reporter who wants to 
sort of investigate this very real possibility, um, this, you know, very possible connection between the Wuhan Institute of Virology or the Wuhan CDC lab and SARS-CoV-2 risks being called a conspiracy theorist. So, um, so I think that's a big element there, but you asked, um, you know, what we can expect going forward. The World Health Organization did put together a group uh, called SAGO that is going to essentially put out a report of what science is needed going forward to um, to you know exculpate the labs in Wuhan and also you know get down to the bottom of how this pandemic started. Um, you know, in order to do any sort of on the ground reporting, you would need um, buy-in from China, and that doesn't look like. Um, a possibility. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. this is sort of the best the WHO can do. And then, you know, um, in the U.S., we, you know, have some clues because of the funding that the National Institutes of Health, a, you know, publicly funded institution um, gave to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through this um, sort of intermediary nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance. You know, those are records that are available to congressional investigators if they so choose. Um, and we know that the Senate Health Committee is interested in investigating um, both, you know, what sort of went wrong with the U.S. response, but also how this pandemic started. Um, and there are a bunch of committees in um, the House also that um, I think should. Republicans get the majority would be interested in subpoenaing documents and figuring out what happened here. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Very interesting update to all of this and and finding out that maybe, you know, if they're deleting records, we might not find out some things, which is, you know, highly problematic, obviously. But thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I know that there are scientists and reporters who are dedicated to learning more. So, um, so hopefully we'll learn more, but thanks so much. Hopefully, that's for sure. (laughs) All right. But we'll have more rising coming up next. Kim, what's on your radar today? Well, while all eyes are on Ukraine, Palestinians have once again been under attack by Israeli forces. Tensions have escalated between the two groups during this holy month, Muslims celebrating Ramadan and Jews celebrating Passover. Both groups fight over holy sites that are important to both Abrahamic religions, particularly a site that is known as Al-Aqsa Mosque by the Muslims and Temple Mount by the Jews. On Friday, April 15th, Israeli soldiers stormed the mosque, injuring over 160 Palestinians and arresting more than 400. Video began circulating online of Israeli soldiers indiscriminately attacking unarmed women, the elderly and disabled. There have been other incursions in cities inside the West Bank that have led to the deaths of over a dozen Palestinians. The deaths include a 14-year-old boy, a 17-year-old boy, a 34-year-old lawyer, and a half-blind widow with six children. The woman was thought to have a knife. She didn't. One of the boys threw a Molotov cocktail, and the lawyer had at one point participated in clashes. In response to the attacks, Hamas fired rockets from Gaza into Israel that were intercepted by the Iron Dome defense system and didn't cause any real damage. Yet in response, the Israelis conducted airstrikes on Gaza, hitting what they say was a Hamas weapons depot. Now, it would be unfair to act like the Palestinians are completely blameless. There have been mass shootings and stabbings conducted over the past few weeks that have left numerous Israelis dead. But here's Mehdi Hassan explaining why this conflict isn't really a both sides issue. 
Now it's time to hand over to my friend Eamon Moyudin. But before I do, Eamon, a topic that you and I have covered for years is back in the headlines, especially since Friday. Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza and the violence we're now seeing in and around one of Islam's holiest sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. More than 170 people injured, more than 20 Palestinians killed. What bothers me, Eamon, is that some of the headlines in the news really don't do justice to the nature of that violence on the ground. It's always about clashes, clashes, uh, in my view, uh, a bit of a lazy journalistic term because it doesn't identify who or what is driving the violence. Clashes implies two equal sides with equal powers, doesn't it? Two equally responsible parties for the violence. And yet the missing context here always matters. One side is the occupier. The other side is occupied. One side right now in Jerusalem is throwing stones, yes. The other side is firing stun grenades and rubber bullets, including reportedly into people's eyes. And look, I get it. The Israelis have their security concerns. You have more than a dozen people in Israel killed, many others wounded over the past few weeks in horrific shootings and stabbings. And we all, of course, condemn those attacks on innocent civilians. But, Eamon, that doesn't justify, though, the scenes we're seeing in Jerusalem right now. It doesn't justify an Israeli operation inside one of Islam's holiest sites during this month of Ramadan. I'm pretty sure people would be up in arms if the American government, say, was violently raiding a major church during Easter, would they not? Palestinians feel their land and homes are being taken from them. And what they're doing by throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails is defending their existence. They're vastly underpowered compared to the Israelis. Every time they've fought back, they have lost more land and lost more of their rights. So I want to point out some obvious hypocrisy. Where are the Palestinian flags and the hashtags like I stand with Palestine? Right now on social media, it seems like half of everyone has changed their profile to include a Ukrainian flag. People can talk freely about the atrocities happening against the Ukrainians and even champion them making homemade weapons to defend themselves. Yet these same people turn around and condemn Palestinians when they do the same. Here's a great example. This is Aviva Klompas, who was the head of speech writing for the Israeli mission to the UN. Here she is posting a photo of young Palestinians holding rocks, mocking people, calling them worshippers. Yet when it comes to Ukrainians making Molotov cocktails, she's praising them. She even has a homage to Zelensky pinned to the top of her page. Now, Bella Hadid, a supermodel who, has, who is Palestinian, has her social media account regularly suspended for showing the atrocities being committed against Palestinians. And as Mehdi Hassan has pointed out, the atrocities committed against Palestinians gets labeled as clashes, whereas the war in Ukraine is often labeled as a genocide. In fact, we've even watched White House reporters badger the Biden administration to escalate the war on behalf of the Ukrainians. We must save them from their nuclear-armed, more powerful neighbor engaging in this unlawful land grab and massacre, they shout. Well, the same thing's happening essentially to the Palestinians. Even Tony Blinken someone who's been actively refusing to support peace talks between Ukraine and Russia is in fact calling for peace between Israel and Palestine. During phone calls with both the Israelis and Palestinians, Blinken stressed the importance of Israeli and Palestinian working to end the cycle of violence in Israel, the West Bank and Gaza by exercising restraint and refraining from actions that escalate tensions. Meanwhile, the U.S. is expected to announce in the coming days another round of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons being sent to Ukraine. So it's very hypocritical. That's the big thing that I want to point out. I want to also mention that though these tensions are horrific right now that are going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians and the abuses on the Palestinians are pretty are, are very atrocious. Luckily, they're not as bad as they were last year when we all were horrified 
by the attacks on Gaza last May. Um, they're not expected to escalate to that point, largely because of the new government. Netanyahu was mm. much more of a hardliner, much more about punishing the Palestinians, showing them who's boss. The current government, Naftali Bennett, is not as, you know, he's way more interested in um, in keeping peace and minimizing destruction and death, largely because the coalition that they have right now in, in the government is very fragile. So we're not likely to see you know, serious escalations like we saw last year in Gaza, for example, many more of those airstrikes. Um, but it is really horrific. The people are very much, uh, there's a lot of aggression there. I've witnessed it myself. I was at Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, mm -hmm. in late 2019, and I saw a, a giant parade of Israelis coming in just to march around with their with secured by uh, Israeli military with their weapons fully there on the mosque uh, territory, just marching around to just kind of exert saying, you know, we belong. This is ours and we we belong this. And of course, they have the right to protest. But when it escalates to the level that it has and then the Israeli Israeli military comes in, the Palestinians are largely unarmed. Uh, yes, they can. Some people do get their hands on weapons here or there, but by and large, they're mostly unarmed. And the Israelis are a much more powerful force. And so it is so similar in a lot of ways to what is going on. Well, it's similar, with caveat, um, mm. to what the West is interpreting the Russia-Ukraine situation to be. Interestingly, uh, the Palestinians actually side more with Russia on this, and the Israelis side more with Ukraine on this. There's a reason for that. The Palestinians sort of view the Russians as not an aggressive occupier coming into Ukraine, but instead a liberator coming in to help the oppressed people in Ukraine, in the Donbass region, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. They view them similarly to themselves and see that they've been um, encroached upon human rights abuses and that Russia is finally coming in to save them. Palestinians mm -hmm. have been begging for someone to do the same for them, and no one really does. Jordan mm -hmm. sort of helped a bit. You know, some of the Arab coalition sort of did a bit. But... By and large, they don't have a big Russia to swoop in. And instead, the U.S. has done a similar thing, which is arm the Israelis, arm the Ukrainians. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic there. That, But but the hypocrisy of the entire yeah. thing is... Yeah, the, the double standard is notable. I remember people pointing out the fact that Twitter has these standards against, you know, inciting violence against particular people that it completely threw out the window when it came to saying you want to have Russian heads on a pike, right? And yeah, I think right. the example of Bella Hadid's accounts getting taken down repeatedly, it's its so instructive. And, you know, this is what, you know, so many people are saying when they say, okay, they're, you know, we're, you know, why the left is so intolerant of the idea of the censorship on Twitter and Trump being pulled because they see repeatedly that the imbalances swing, you know, most pointedly against uh, the left when it comes to advocacy for Palestine in particular. We talk about all of these censorship campaigns going on at colleges and universities, but often the unsung targets of so many of those campaigns are professors that speak out on behalf of the rights of Palestinians uh, like Cornell West, who very famously went through that whole tenure rigmarole at Harvard, in large part, he says, because of his advocacy for Palestinian rights. And I think that your point about the flag rings really, really true. 
it, it from the earliest days of this conflict, it became clear that the flag was less about, and you know, obviously individuals where they are, and I think that people have a lot of really organic and sincere sympathetic sympathy for the people as, of Ukraine, as they should. But it has been politicized from the get-go, and you can see that in the differentiation between people's willingness to buy this kind of flag versus versus other kinds of flags. And since Russia became this kind of um, political pariah in the context of our own democracy in 2016, when it was really blamed for Trump's victory and Hillary Clinton's loss, since that point being antagonistic to Russia has been a lot, been a, a lot more than just about Russia, but talking about being a good liberal and anti-Trump and all of these other things. Right. And so now when this conflict broke up, it was perhaps only natural to see Ukrainian sympathies being used as a kind of proxy for being a, a good liberal. Right. Yeah. And it's so interesting also that, you know, for kind of to bring up some more of your examples, like when you mentioned Cornell West, you know, we've seen people like Abby Martin, for example, mm -hmm. being told that she's not allowed to speak you know, about Palestinian, uh, about what's going on with the Palestinians and their rights and whatnot, you know, not allowed to because of BDS. Mm -hmm. um, if you support BDS, which is boycott, divest, and sanction against Israel. If you support any of those things, then you're not allowed to hold certain jobs, to speak. You know, basically, you're not allowed to collect certain money from certain governments, mm -hmm. uh, state governments throughout the country. And it's so interesting because I wonder if we're headed in that sort of similar direction when it comes to Russia, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not allowed to support Russia in any way or to say certain things. I mean, we even have bills that are that they're trying to pass even here in the state of California, not necessarily about Ukraine and Russia, but certainly speech bills about, mm -hmm. for example, the virus um, mm -hmm. and vaccines and masking and whatnot, saying if you say certain things, then it is illegal in the state. And so um, mm -hmm. we we've seen examples of this with BDS. I'm curious if we're going to reach that point. It feels that way on social media a little bit, like even if it's not illegal, if you say something, you know, you get eviscerated or you get mm -hmm. labeled immediately a Putin puppet. So it's, it, it, you know, but the Palestinians are still very much fighting to maintain what land they have left. Every time they battle it out with the Israelis in an actual war, they lose more land. They lose more rights. Uh, they, they are trying to resist in other ways. Violence is never the answer. I do think that that is worse for them. Every time there are acts of violence, it does make the situation worse. Uh, but this is just, you know, the hypocrisy of this whole situation is mind boggling. I think that's what I wanted to bring attention to today. So thanks for letting me do that. <laughs> no, it was it was really great and helpful. And I think we'll land well, a lot of people resonate with a lot of people because whom's among us? <laughs> Who among us hasn't been called a Putin puppet at this point? At this point, right. Well, <laughs> all right. All right. Well, thank you. We'll have more rising coming up next. The geopolitical fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine may result in two new NATO members soon. Both the Swedish and Finnish governments have indicated they're considering abandoning decades of military independence and neutrality in favor of the security guaranteed guarantees offered by NATO. Earlier this week, Finnish Prime Minister Santa Marin confirmed that talks to join the alliance were sparked directly by the war in Ukraine. Let's watch. The European security architecture have changed fundamentally after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The change in the security landscape makes it necessary to analyze how we best secure peace for Finland and in our region in the future. We have in the last years intensified our defense cooperation. 
Therefore, it is important that we have a constant dialogue between our countries. Both Finland and Sweden make independently their decisions regarding security policy arrangements. But we do that with a clear understanding that our choices will affect not only ourselves, but our neighbours as well. Joining us now to walk us through what could be a major restructuring of the power in Europe is retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. He's a senior fellow at mil and military expert at military expert defense priorities. Welcome back to the show. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm alarmed by this. I think this is not a good move. What do you I, it, there's I don't feel like any real threat to Sweden or Finland. Why would they be wanting to fan the flames? It seems like at this point by doing something such as this, since we know that one of the main reasons for the invasion in Ukraine was the discussion of NATO expansion. Tell us, how is this a wise idea for Finland and Sweden to be indicating that they might be joining NATO? Well, look, I certainly understand it on one level because it's uh, it's an emotional response uh, and, and understandable fear that you see a, a country on your border that is showing some aggressive uh, moves and has been willing to cross border to go into another country that uh, that you know and, and is engaged in full on war. So, on the one level, I certainly understand that, but but on a practical level, we have to understand that that nothing is done in a vacuum, and for Finland and Sweden to be added to NATO. Uh, adds a burden to the entire alliance, and, and it adds yet another level of potential risk for the United States. So before anybody does anything, I think we need to take a long, hard look at this. We cannot rush this through and make a, a decision on emotion because people so much you know, hate Russia, understandably so, but in many quarters. But we have to do what makes sense for American national security. And one of the aspects of this would be necessary first is to demonstrate someone has to be able to show us how NATO would militarily defend against a, an attack into Finland. And of course, you have this large uh, border with Russia, which would be adding to their fear. And of course, you've probably seen that Moscow's re reaction has been understandable and predictable, that they would move forces more toward that area, that they would accelerate their nuclear posture uh, toward the uh, both the Finns and the Swedes. And, you know, neither, none of those things are good for our, for uh, security, and it does nothing to lower the tensions. It only does things to heighten the tensions, because, as you just said, that was one of the reasons why Russia claims that they attacked into Ukraine. Well, Lieutenant Colonel, you know, Finland didn't start sharing a border with Russia yesterday. NATO emerged post-Cold War as a post-Cold War defense treaty. The idea was not that it was going to get bigger, if anything, that it was going to get sm smaller post-Soviet Union ceased to exist. You know, why do you think strategically now we're having these conversations? I hear you saying that there is kind of a, an emotional resonance here, a kind of emotional understanding for why they would be concerned. But we were given a lot of very kind of like psychosomatic reasons for the invasion before there was a more fulsome conversation about NATO expansion as precipitating some of these events. Do you think there are other strategic factors going on? Is this a game of chicken that the, the West is playing saying, hey, you didn't, don't want NATO expansion? I'll give you NATO expansion. You know, what do you think is going on here? I, I'm sure that that actually has a, an, an element of it in uh, that, that many are saying, oh, OK, so you said NATO expansion wasn't this, then yeah, here's here. how about these two big ones here? And of course, there's still talk about uh, potentially later on Ukraine joining NATO, which, which I think is entirely unhelpful and definitely not necessary 
or useful. Look, we have to understand also a fundamental reality and truth here. And NATO expansion, it, by, the, by the very uh, declaration of NATO itself, can only be done if it improves the security of the entire alliance. Hmm. Adding, adding these two countries will not improve it. It will add burden to the remainder of them. But here's another really fundamental problem with all this that needs to be openly discussed out in the open, is that the Russians have shown that their tactical conventional capacity is far less than anybody thought. Ukraine has now caused extraordinary levels of damage to their ground forces, and it will be a decade or more before they even get back to where they were before 24 February, meaning that Russia is no threat to attack a single NATO country, much less to go into multiple ones, as some are hysterically claiming. There's no truth to that. There's no reality based on it when you look at the fundamentals. So there is no need to expand NATO it is unfortunately primarily an emotional uh, move right now. We just have to be honest and admit that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Sweden joining NATO, I don't think would really cause much. I mean, that's no different, I think, than, you know, Germany or any of these other countries. I mean, they're not right up on Russia's border. But Finland, on the other hand, you know, Helensky to Moscow is about the same distance as Kiev to Moscow. Uh, and then you got St. Petersburg right there on the border of Finland. So, of course, Russia would have security concerns that I believe would be very legitimate. At the same time, obviously, Finland um, has their own security concerns. But, you know, where do you think this is really is this is this sort of the the I don't know, military industrial complex saying, well, if we can't have Ukraine, then we need to swap it out for Finland and we need to get, uh, you know, more bases up on the Finnish border. I mean, what, what do you think is really truly driving this? Well, I, I hope that's not the case. Uh because that would be pretty bad if it was. Uh, you can't rule it out. I don't have any personal evidence to, to see that. But what I do think is there's a lot of is that it's uh, there's this move to punish Russia everywhere you can, whether it's through sanctions, whether it's sending weapons and uh, other help into Ukraine or expanding NATO. And I think a lot of people are, are backing anything that, that Russia doesn't like, and they definitely don't like this one. Uh, and so I think it's just based on, on a punitive intent. But we have to be sober and, and straight about this and understand we got to think long term. We can't just think what's going on right now. This does not help us long term. And we should definitely not fast track this because it won't. Uh, I don't believe it will work out to our advantage. And we need to make sure that we do what makes sense. In an ideal world, what would you script the Biden administration's response as being, you know, should they be coming out saying we are not looking to expand NATO at this time as a way to de-escalate tensions with Russia? And how likely it is, do you think we're going to get that kind of a response? Uh, if I was in the White House, I would be advocating that, that we say, OK, we're going to take these requests seriously, because I do completely understand the concerns of the Finns, especially because of their locality and closeness to the border and the fact that they've got a bad history with with Soviet Union and Russia in the past. And I, I do get that. Let's just say let's take our time. Let's do this methodically. Uh, let's do, you know, take some time and think about these and do studies and, and that kind of thing, just kind of to slow down the train for the mo for the moment. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that uh, I, I just think that once we do that, we can show that it's not in America's interest. It's not in NATO's interest. And it's ultimately not in Finland's interest. But uh, in terms of what I expect to see, uh, I'm just not sure. No, President Biden has kind of stood firm on a number of things, uh, you know, against lots of popular opinion. And I applaud him for that. Uh, 
uh, and other things that uh, with the pressure gets too great, sometimes he goes in other directions. And mm. it frankly remains to be seen how this goes. Well, I appreciate yeah. your insight on this, Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you for joining us. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, tomorrow on Rising, our Rising panel will join us to weigh in on the biggest news of the day. And don't forget, Rising Fridays kick off this week. Join Ryan Graham and Emily Jashinsky. Jashinsky. Yeah, I know. It took a while for me to. Oh, God. So sorry. Tomorrow on Rising, our Rising panel will join us to weigh in on the biggest news of the day. And don't forget, Rising Fridays kick off this week. Join Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. They'll take a look back at the week and preview what's to come. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check that out. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow. Hopefully, Robbie's feeling better. I know I <laughs> had to jump in a bit early for him this morning. Uh, so you're, you're hopefully he feels Kim. better. Yes, I, well, I don't want to I don't want to show up really early tomorrow morning. So Robbie better get back on the train <laughs> and feeling better by tomorrow. That's what I know. <laughs> Sending All positive right, energy out into the universe. Yes. yes. See you All tomorrow. Right, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.